This podcast is intended for UK and Ireland healthcare professionals only. It is my pleasure to welcome you to episode five of the Interstitial Lung Disease Academy Spotlight Podcasts, brought to you by Boehringer Ingelheim, featuring prominent members of the UK and Ireland ILD community. These podcasts hope to shine a spotlight on the great work that is being done around the country and break down some of the challenges facing us in delivering the excellent care to our patients. My name is Dr. Anne-Marie Russell, a clinical academic at the University of Exeter Respiratory Institute and Royal Devon and Exeter NHS Foundation Trust, with a special interest in patient-reported measures and outcomes in interstitial lung disease and patient-centred approaches. Joining me on today's episode is Dr. Devinder Dassange, a consultant respiratory physician and an honorary senior clinical lecturer at the University of Birmingham. Dr. Desange is the respiratory research lead at University Hospitals Birmingham. Welcome, Devinder. Thank you. I wonder if we could start by talking a little bit about you uh, and your role as a clinician researcher. Um, absolutely. So um, I, I hope you don't mind, but I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened before I became a, a clinical academic. So um, I, I was born and bred in Birmingham and I grew up in Handsworth, which is one of uh, our inner city uh, suburbs here in, in Birmingham. Um, and um, I lived on top of a shop um, of first generation immigrants from India. And then um, I went to school in Handsworth and then subsequently to uh, one of the uh, kind of grammar equivalents in Birmingham and then uh, went to Oxford to study medicine and I have to say I, I, it was not what I expected. I, um, <laughs> I, I started as a first year medical student um, and I found it really quite tough, uh, very alien environment, um, quite difficult to, I found it quite difficult to make friends, uh, difficult to find people that you know had similar interests to me and actually, I was on the verge of quitting. Um, and my parents kind of said, don't be ridiculous. You're not quitting medicine at Oxford. So uh, we, I persevered. Um, and then um, halfway through, I, I kind of, I, I still wasn't really enjoying the course. And I said to my tutor, oh, well, I'd just like a year out, if I may. And he said, well, well, Davinda, what do you plan to do? I said, oh, I don't really have any specific plans. I'm just going to maybe travel a bit and and figure out what I want to do with my life. And he said, no, you can't do that. I'm not going to give you leave to do that. You can do a year of research if you like. Um, and so uh, as a consequence of that, I uh, enrolled in a master's uh, research program at the University of Oxford. Um, and that was supervised by Ajit Lalvani. And I have to say that probably changed the whole trajectory of my, of my career really. Um, so I looked at T-cell-based uh, diagnostics for um, mycobacterium tuberculosis infection. And um, that changed into a DPhil. Um, and then uh, after that, um, I suddenly was an academic. Um, and um, having gone from scraping through my clinic, you know, my preclinical exams, I was suddenly held up as the poster boy for academia um, yeah, and, uh, and then after that, I went to uh, Northwest Thames Deanery for my foundation training. Um, and at the time, it was that weird time where 
Um, they were starting to set up academic posts, but not really for people that had already done a PhD. So I was advised to just apply for a clinical post, um, which I did. And I did my foundation training and core medical training as a full-time clinical trainee. Um, and then I got married and wanted to move to Birmingham, back home. And at the time, I wanted to pursue a career in respiratory medicine, uh, but I was really worried that I wouldn't get a number. So I um, thought, well, it's time to think about research again. So I inquired at the University of Birmingham, and it happened that there were lecturer posts coming up. Um, and Professor David Thicket was a fantastic help and support for me. Uh, I managed to get a, a clinical respiratory number, then subsequently applied for a lecturer post. And um, here we are now. Um, so I became a consultant at UHB uh, in September 2018, again, as a, as a full-time clinician, uh, but uh, kept a, a research interest. Um, and then the COVID pandemic hit and uh, everything flew up into the air. And it, it really became clear to me that it was a real opportunity to develop my research interest again for something that is acutely going to make a difference for the patients that I was treating. Um, so we, as a department, decided that we really wanted to support any research uh, that was happening in the in the trust. Um, so we, I became the PI for um, three uh, urgent public health badged uh, studies in COVID, and we delivered those successfully. And we supported the recovery trial and the recovery RS trial. Um, and it really uh, sparked, I think, in the department, but also in the hospital as a whole, a real interest in research in general. And I think we're, we're currently at a time where we have a real opportunity to integrate research into everything that we do in the NHS because everyone knows what it is, everyone understands that it's relevant, and everyone understands that, you know, everyone from the porter to the nurse to the SHO to the consultant to the matron everyone has to get involved with research in order to deliver for the patients that we serve. Um, so I think it, uh, it's really important that we maximise on that. I, I, on there. Yes, I, I guess certainly research is everybody's business, and I think that's become a prominent slogan through uh, the, the COVID pandemic. And I'm guessing when you thought you were choosing a career in respiratory medicine, of course, uh, you wouldn't have seen the pandemic coming and, and life has changed uh, a great deal over, over the last 18 months. Um, so you mentioned the Recovery RS trial, and as I particularly wanted to ask you about that, Davinda, and thinking um, about that as, a, as an example, how um, did integrating uh, trial recruitment into clinical care pathways uh, help with recruitment numbers, do you think? So thank you for that question. I think this is a really important point and, and it goes back to what we were saying in that research is everybody's business. So the Recovery RS trial, um, for, for those that aren't aware, because this is not really related to interstitial lung disease, but it was, it was a trial to investigate the use of non-invasive respiratory support uh, in people with severe COVID-19 pneumonia. 
Because if, if we think back to the beginning of the pandemic, nobody really knew whether we should be using CPAP, whether we should be using high flow nasal oxygen, or whether we should just be intubating these people when they reached an oxygen, you know, an FiO2 of 60%. And there was real, real debate. And, you know, I, I remember the footage of the Italian hospitals having corridors of people on CPAP. Whereas uh, at UHB, we took almost the opposite approach, which was that, well, we don't have any evidence that CPAP works in this setting, so we're not going to use it at all. And so we'll just support them with uh, face mass oxygen until we can do that no longer, and then we'll intubate. And so the, 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 there was a real question to be answered there. Um, and the Recovery RS trial ca came about in order to answer that question. And... Uh, the trial looked at randomizing people to standard care, which was deemed to be oxygen via a face mask, to high-flow nasal oxygen, or to CPAP. Um, and, of course, the preprint is out, but it's still under peer review. Um, but there, there were clear findings from that trial. And going back to your original question, um, we tried to recruit at uh, the QE site to the Recovery RS trial for a number of months. Uh, and we, we were recruiting, but not largely. Um, bearing in mind that UHB was the largest COVID centre in the UK, and we had the largest COVID-19 pneumonia ITU in Europe at certain points during the pandemic. Actually, how we were recruiting to Recovery RS was a bit haphazard, and it didn't really, it wasn't offered systematically to every patient. So when we set up our respiratory support unit, when we were creating the uh, patient pathways, we decided to integrate the Recovery RS trial, or at least offering the Recovery RS trial to every patient that we thought needed respiratory support on our respiratory support unit. And just by having that simple step of integrating, asking the question, would you like to take part in the Recovery RS trial? When, when the respiratory physician went to review the patient, because of course every patient that was admitted was reviewed by us in the first instance, we managed to statistically significantly increase recruitment. Um, and I know when people say statistically significant, you think, oh yeah, it probably went from one per month to two per month or something like that. But if anybody's interested, um, you can you can uh, you can look on BMJ Open Respiratory Medicine. We published our experience, and you can see that um, in the space of the six months after the recovery, after the respiratory support unit was set up, we recruited twice as many patients to Recovery RS as the entire nine to ten months prior to having that simple change in the patient pathway. And so what we want to do going forward is to think about how we can do that for all of our studies and all of the research that we're doing at UHB, um, not just in respiratory, but, but in all, in all uh, disease areas. And, and I think that actually having that simple step, making sure that it's research is integrated in everything that we do will mean that our patients receive better care. I, I think that's a, a really fantastic model. And I'm also interested, I guess we're in a time where uh, human resource is, is a challenge uh, in the healthcare professions. So using this approach, did it was it cost effective and was it labour effective in, in terms of boosting recruitment? 
It was it was it was absolutely fantastic, really, because as again you'll remember, and this is what happened during the pandemic at every hospital. There were a number of studies that everybody wanted to recruit to, and the R and D department was absolutely stretched because not only did they have to help to deliver all of these studies, but they were also being pulled to the intensive care unit, to the wards, in order to help care for these patients. And actually, by having this simple step, and, and of course, this won't be um, something that you could do for every study, and the Recovery RS was, study was set up as a very pragmatic trial. But by having this simple step where every clinic clinician was involved, it didn't become a burden on a particular team or a particular research team. Actually, every registrar in our department had done the simple training for Recovery RS, uh, and felt confident and competent to approach patients to, you know, deliver the study. And because of the way the study was set up, it was very easy to randomize the patient. Uh, the paperwork was not extensive. Um, and so I think there, there are two parts to consider here. One is if we integrate research and make it everyone's business, suddenly it's not a massive burden on one particular section of our workforce and everyone contributes so actually nobody really notices a particular burden. But the other thing is we have to think about trial design as well. And given the resource implications that we have at the moment, and, and let's face it, certainly in the NHS, that resource implication is not going to disappear overnight. In the UK, and probably abroad as well, particularly if we want to think about underrepresented populations in, in resource-poor regions, we really have a responsibility to think about how we design these trials to make the burden of trial delivery uh, much, much less without compromising on, obviously, all the ethical principles that we have to adhere to. Yeah, and you mentioned um, uh, underrepresented groups, Davinda, and I'd like to speak to that a, a little bit more. We, we both work in, in very different areas. Uh, our patients um, struggle for different reasons. We have a lot of remote communities in the southwest. I think Birmingham is probably a little bit more densely populated, although there are uh, uh, countryside uh, uh, that, that will, you will serve. But thinking also about the demographic of your population, could you... Um, explain how uh, we ensure that there is appropriate representation of, of these communities in clinical trials? Yeah, so, yes, of course. So I think the first thing to say is that we have to define what we mean by underserved groups, because actually that's different in different contexts. Are we talking about uh, a representation of a group compared to the general population? Are we talking about uh, including groups that are particularly troubled by that particular problem that the trial is trying to address? Or are we talking about groups that have worse access to healthcare for that particular problem? So actually, we, we, we do need to think about that when we're talking about this topic generally. And and when we're designing our research, we, we probably have to think, well, what 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 underserved groups am I trying to address with this protocol? Um, but putting that to one side, um, the, the other thing that we have to think about is, uh, you know, once we've decided on what we mean by underserved, actually, we, we almost always automatically think we're talking about ethnic minorities. Um, and I think that's, uh, that's, uh, by, that's a massive oversimplification of, of the problem. 
Um, so I think we we have to think about age. Um, if we think if we look at the clinical trials that are done routinely, often people over seventy five are excluded. Whereas actually looking at the patients that we serve, uh, most of the patients that I see in the ILD clinic are. 76, 77, early 80s. Um, we, we often exclude um, patients that are pregnant. We often exclude patients that don't come to our clinics because how are we supposed to recruit those patients? And it's often those per- people that are most commonly you know, affected uh, by the disease process that we're trying to treat. I mean, going back to COVID-19 as an example, um, we, we've heard a lot about how ethnic minorities are particularly uh, severely affected by COVID-19. Um, and yet a recent survey by the NHR found that only uh, 9.3% of participants in UK COVID studies uh, were from ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, and that compares to 14% of the general population and a much higher percentage of people that are severely affected. So although ethnic, it's important to consider ethnic minorities, I've just, I've just given you some figures to illustrate that, we need to think more nuanced. We need to think, we need to think about more nuance when we're thinking about the certain groups that are often underrepresented. Um, and I think the other thing that we need to consider is that we may be disadvantaging people just simply because we don't collect data about particular aspects. So, for example, uh, we did some work uh, looking around socioeconomic status uh, and COVID-19, and we found that people coming to our hospital were were more likely to have multi-lobar pneumonia if they came from uh, a postcode where you had increased household overcrowding, increased air pollution, worse housing quality, worse adult skills. But actually, if you look at the trials in, in COVID that are published on all COVID-19, you know, the big recovery trials, um, you know, none, none of that data is presented in a routine way. So how do we know that the, the treatment that we're giving is impacting on the patients that we're actually treating. Um, and to relate this to ILD, um, you know, if you look at the major ILD trials looking at antifibrotics, actually, I was surprised to see that they don't even report on ethnicity, never mind housing overcrowding. Um, you know, they, it's often reported that this is from multiple countries or multiple centers. But actually drilling down into, well, how many people from Indian origin were included in this trial? Because 20% of the patients that I see in clinic are Indian. Actually, I have no data on that. And even if you look at um, the uh, epidemiological data that's available looking at interstitial lung disease, there was a great poster featured at the British Thoracic Society from Imperial uh, a, a few days ago. Look, and they've done a systematic review of uh, epidemiological papers of interstitial lung disease from across the world. And actually, they'd only found, they found hardly any data from Africa. 
And the vast majority of the data from Asia was looking at occupational lung disease. And yet I, I manage a very multicultural clinic um, with autoimmune-related ILD, uh, IPF, and all I'm prescribing antifibrotics, thinking, hoping that I'm doing the right thing, but actually the hard data just simply isn't there. So when we're designing our studies and when we're approaching research, and, and not even designing the studies, I suppose, even when we're delivering, we really have to think very carefully about what we're doing to encourage recruitment from these underrepresented uh, uh, groups. Um, and, and, and going back to, sorry, I'm, I'm just going to uh, mention one more point. Every time, you know, when we, when, whenever any of us fill in a grant application, we say, you know, there's always a section about how are you going to uh, make sure that you uphold your ethical standards with this study. And every time, guaranteed, everyone will write, we will follow the Declaration of Helsinki, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually, part of the Declaration of Helsinki, Principle 13, is that we will ensure that groups that are underrepresented in medical research should be provided appropriate access to participation in research. Well, when was the last time you uh, or, or I were, you know, designed a study where I'd had, um, for example, a patient information leaflet in Punjabi or Cantonese or Polish. And actually, that automatically excludes a vast swathe of society. It's an unintentional. We don't mean to do it, and it's unconscious. But actually, we all sign up to these principles. We all promise that we're going to uphold these principles. But in reality, often uh, we find that things are very complicated and it's just easier to do it uh, in the way that it's always been done. And I think that's what needs to be questioned. Uh, I think those are really important points. And I, I guess I'm interested in the, the how um, <laughs> of, of achieving that and, and thinking particularly in interstitial lung disease, and you mentioned age. Um, and, and of course, we do have colleagues, particularly in the lung transplant wor world, that would uh, adhere to physiological age rather than chronological age. So how, how might we go about assessing and completing an ethics application, perhaps it's the application process that's wrong, um, to design <laughs> studies that, that, that maybe focus on uh, physiological age rather than chronological and, and focus on um, uh, some of the uh, ethnic minority groups. I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Yeah. I think it's really tricky. The, the, the chronological age versus the physiological age, I, I completely agree. And you can, you know, we've all seen marathon runners in their 80s that um, are often discriminated against because, because of their age. Um, I, I think what we as a research community need to do for that particular question is to come up with a consensus as to how we can have objective measures of physiological age. Um, and I know that um, the University of Birmingham is very interested in this. Um, my honorary senior lecturer post is in the Institute of Inflammation and Aging. And a lot of that work is surrounding how we age in a healthy way and what markers we can use for frailty and aging, um, rather than just relying on, you know, your chronological age. 
and we do this in clinic all the time, don't we? We, we, we you know, we, nev- we, we, we ask patients to come in um, and we make a, a judgment decision on whether we think the patient is going to benefit from that treatment. And we do a risk-benefit analysis and we do that with the patient. Obviously, you can't do that when you're designing a research study. So I think it's really, we need to, we need as a community to come up with some kind of systematic approach that we all agree on that can give us a guide and 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 your work in patient reported outcome measures could be essential to that um trying to integrate the patient's views into part of that algorithm and doing some ppie work um to come up with that um you know objective marker and that should be used rather than age per se um in terms of ethnic minorities, I think that's really difficult because um, there are multiple barriers to uh, including ethnic minorities more in research. Um, and um, if anybody's more interested in looking at that, the NIHR has a great uh, website. Um, if, you, if you Google the Include Project NIHR, it will take you to this wonderful website. And, and the NIHR did the Include study and, and from that created a roadmap as to how we can involve underrepresented groups in research. And they, 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 it, it's, it's set out very nicely, actually. Um, and it's involving these stakeholders right from the beginning of our research design. Um, you know, before we put in that grant application, PPIE shouldn't be an afterthought, oh, what can we put in the PPIE box? Um, when we're coming up with the question for the study, actually, that's the time when we need to be engaging with these stakeholders and explaining what it is, not from our perspective, why we think it's important, but gaining their perspective so that we can understand what's important for them as well. And it's a two-way process because once you engage in that way, actually you build a relationship with with communities. They start to understand why research is important, but also we start to understand what 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 research needs to be done to deliver the the things that matter to those communities. Um, so I think it's I think it's complex. It's difficult, um, but without grasping the nettle, we'll make no progress. Um, to give an example of a study that I think has done this really well, um, the, the Stop COVID study, which was uh, 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 led by Prof Chalmers in Dundee, um, which was looking at uh, a, 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 a in COVID, severe COVID-19. I was amazed because it was the first study I'd ever done where the, the, the CTU suggested to me, what are your local ethnic minority populations? What uh, international patients do you see on a regular basis? We can provide you with patient information sheets in basically any language that you require. And it was the first time that anybody had ever offered that to me. And I, I, I applauded them. Actually, that probably cost a massive amount of money, and I'm not sure how much it, a difference it made because it's not just the patient information leaflet. It's the research nurse being able to speak to the patient as well, isn't it? It's the PI being able to have that communication, which builds the relationship and the trust. But actually, it was a great first step because 
I could give that leaflet to the patient. They could then speak to their family about it. And if they were interested, they could then, I could speak to the family and we could have an interpreter. It just breaks down that barrier. Um, and it was, it was simple um, and it didn't fix everything. But it was a start. And I think we, we need to start doing that in, in a more comprehensive and uh, targeted way. Yeah, it sounds like you made a big step forward. And, and I guess we hope that our experiences of COVID and our reliance on digital platforms, that there must also be some digital solutions that might help us uh, moving forward as well, particularly in relation to language. Absolutely. And um, uh, so we, we have done a lot of... Um, moving to digital solutions in, in our trust simply because of the COVID pandemic. And it has helped, it has helped a lot because actually patients miss appointments less frequently because they don't have to read a letter which tells them uh, that they need to be at a certain place in a certain time. Um, I can get a lot more from the consultation because it's much easier to have a relative in the room at home than it is to have a relative bring that patient to hospital. So if there is a language barrier, the relative can help me. It's also made a lot of difference in terms of gaining an interpreter to be present in the consultation. It's much easier for me to have an interpreter over the phone uh, than it is to have a, a, you know, one physically present in, in, the, in the clinic room. So uh, it has made a massive difference, but we need to be careful because not everyone has access to digital solutions. Um, so, for example, I was recruiting to a study and in order to take part, the patients had to have access to a web portal. So they had to have access to Microsoft Teams, um, which automatically excluded anyone that didn't have Internet access in their home. Now, we're lucky in Birmingham because uh, we have one of the highest uptakes of um, internet access in the country. And actually, in terms of smartphone uptake, um, we have, I think, over 90% of our population in Birmingham has a smartphone. But actually, thinking about other communities, thinking about, um, you know, uh, areas outside of the UK, having a requirement where you have to have internet access would become a major barrier and so we have to make sure that uh, by coming up with inventive solutions, we're not then creating other populations, which we, we then start to exclude. Yeah, no, that's a very important point. Um, and, and thank you. you. You've given us some very nice examples as well of, of what could work and potential solutions to think about in terms of study design and involving patients earlier in the research process and in, in recruitment. So we've talked a lot about uh, the role of the individual and I'm reflecting on some of my own experiences when the only way that I was able to reach an Asian community in North London was by working in an evening and speaking to the son or the daughter after they got home from work uh, to present the, the information in a comprehensive way. And I'm, I'm wondering, Devinda, if you think there are other contributing factors that present barriers to involving some of these underrepresented communities in research. I, th I think that's a really important point. And I think we, uh, as a community, need to think about our own, uh, not only unconscious biases, but perhaps our, our conscious biases as well. And, um, 
you know, we, we know that um, perhaps some underrepresented communities are particularly difficult to recruit from. Uh, it might be because of what, what you've suggested in that they want to speak to their family or they want you to speak to their family and that doesn't lend itself to our nine-to-five working lifestyle. Um, and those kinds of experiences then make us less inclined to try and recruit from that community going forwards. Um, and, and it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle of, oh, I found it really difficult to recruit that patient um, and then next time when you see someone from the same community, you think, oh, gosh, I've only got 10 minutes of my day left and I really don't want to get stuck in a conversation, so uh, I won't bother approaching that patient. Uh, um, and then that patient will see you go to another patient and they'll, th- then they'll think, well, why wasn't I approached about that study? Um, and, then, and then, you know, that feeds back and you get this never-ending feedback of negativity, um, and I think um, we we really need to think about how we can interrupt that cycle, uh, and how we can improve both the way we communicate with with um, uh, individuals from these communities uh, in in preparation for a grant application, for example, but also how we can uh, help those individuals understand the research that we're trying to deliver in a way that's accessible to them. Uh, and not just in a way that suits us. Yeah, no, absolutely. So we, so we have a lot of work to do, but it's eminently feasible. Thank you. Absolutely. The solutions are there. We just need to grab them. It's been really fascinating to speak with you today. I'm, uh, thank you so much for giving us your time. And I'm sure the listeners will uh, learn a lot and have some food for thought about how to uh, Im- improve recruitment and uh, inter- integration of un- underrepresented groups in their clinical trials moving forward. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.